Welcome to the eighth episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is called The Bigger Picture, How to Monetize Your Life's Work in the Long Term. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. In our last episode, we discussed the ways in which a breakaway advisor could monetize the business in the short term to fund startup, to de-risk a move, and replace lost, unvested, deferred comp. Certainly, as the landscape of the industry has expanded and more and more legitimate and exciting models are born, and investors and lenders flock to the space, and the ability for an entrepreneurial-minded advisor to go independent becomes all the more realistic. But the real advantage of going independent and ditching W-2 land becomes more tangible and obvious over time in the midterm and the long term. In the long term, let's call it eight years or more, the economic delta between taking a recruiting deal by moving from one W-2 opportunity to another and building an independent enterprise and then selling it or passing it on to the next-gen successors becomes vast. And that's what we want to discuss today. So I've invited Lewis Diamond, who spends a lot of his time in counseling breakaway advisors and facilitating M&A deals in the independent space. Certainly his name is familiar. It is to me, of course, as he is my son and vice president of our firm, Diamond Consultants. So let's jump in. Lewis, what's driving M&A in the space and why is it at a record high? I'm so happy to have the opportunity to speak on a topic that I am passionate about and I know is on the minds of most advisors these days, whether they're considering a move to independence or are already established business owners. So I would certainly agree with your characterization that we are at a record high in terms of the number of M&A deals we are seeing. Last year, as an example, we saw over 150 transactions in the independent space. That is a merger or acquisition. And this was the fourth consecutive year of growth in that number. And also to note that the average size deal was right around $880 million in terms of the assets under management. While every M&A deal has its unique drivers, independent firm owners, both long-tenured um, established business owners, as well as those considering a move to independence, typically cite six prevailing reasons or drivers for why they now more than ever are considering entering into a merger or acquisition agreement. Those six drivers are succession, a need for scale, stagnant growth, clients demanding more sophisticated services, increasing enterprise value, and taking some chips off the table to diversify one's equity. So the first topic that is a hot button um, in the entire industry is succession. Right now, the average age of a financial advisor is inching closer to 60 years old and is showing no signs of coming down, especially as many have a lack of a formal succession plan. And with fewer young people entering the space and training programs at the wirehouses and major firms on the decline, 
it is getting much tougher to fill the succession gap, especially for smaller RIAs and independent businesses. While the succession crisis is certainly heating up, a merger can certainly help alleviate some of the succession concerns for those advisors considering retirement or getting closer to that point. Um, As strong next-generation leadership teams at larger and more established RIAs um, can help to solve for this, as there may be one or multiple pre-selected successors at the ready to take over the business. We also see that many firms, their preference is to solve for succession internally, that is by passing on the business to one or multiple individuals within the firm, whether that be a family member or just strong talent within the organization. However, what often happens is that the market is extremely competitive for those firms that are unable to fill that role internally as there's a lot of competition for the same exact individual, meaning someone who is young, credentialed, oftentimes has a book of business. So the larger firms typically do have an advantage in this segment. So how about the need for scale, which was the second point? Great point. As the cost of doing business has certainly increased over the last number of years, and the cost of compliance because of DOL or other FINRA or SEC mandated areas has become more expensive. And as technology investments need to be accelerated, um, scale certainly is a big issue. And while this is happening as well, there is a massive price and margin compression occurring, especially in the face of robo-advisors and the commoditization of investment advice. Scale, though, allows for firms to invest in areas like human capital and bringing in next-gen successors or really talented individuals, marketing programs, and also makes it more attractive for prospective advisors and clients alike to join the firm. Finally, the bringing together of two RIAs or independent businesses produces operating leverage, meaning as a business becomes more profitable and more revenue is generated, each incremental dollar of revenue goes to the bottom line, which allows for firms to retain more economics and produce scale with industry vendors. The third point I mentioned was stagnant growth and the notion that independent business owners have hit a ceiling on where that growth is able to take them. We see that the law of large numbers often kicks in meaning it was much easier and quicker to grow a business from, say, $50 million to $75 million under management than it is to get from $1 billion to $1.5 or $2 billion. So by gaining scale and potentially merging or selling a practice, one is able to overcome this law of large numbers phenomena. And there's two different ways that this growth can be accelerated through a transaction. First is eliminating capacity constraints. Many independent business owners talk about wanting to get out of the kitchen and focus just on the business of client service and investment management, which is really what they're passionate about and what their talents are best suited for. So this could mean taking off the hat of compliance officer and human, human resource officer and really refocusing the business, which, after all, 
is why advisors are in the business and also generates more revenue opportunities. An M&A deal, too, can transfer the business development experience of one successful firm to another. Oftentimes, this could mean entering into custodial referral programs, meaning the retail footprints of Charles Schwab and Fidelity, and having those clients referred to some of their larger RIA clients. It could mean unique center of influence relationships with lawyers and CPAs, or other innovative lead generation systems that can be transferred from one firm to another. Larger firms as well also have more success and resources to be active in recruiting financial advisors with books of business and acquiring other firms. So it could be the phenomena of tuck-in acquisitions under an acquired firm. Point four I would like to make as the reason we are seeing record volume of M&A deals is that clients now more than ever are demanding much more sophisticated services beyond just the business of portfolio management. With the advent of robo-advisors, the commoditization of investment advice, clients are really looking for more to justify their financial advisor's fees. For example, bringing together a more investment-focused firm with one that leads with financial planning and offers things like estate planning, tax advisory, um, trust work, etc., allows for both firms to better serve clients and allows for the once-only portfolio management firm to now deliver many more value-add services to their trusted clients. So the next topic you mentioned, Lewis, was increasing enterprise value. And at the end of the day, that's the reason that everybody would be looking to do anything. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. The term I like to use in this capacity is a rising tide lifts all boats. And what I mean by that is by bringing together two different RIAs, more value is created in the eyes of a future buyer because the multiple that will be applied to a combined entity is going to be greater than that of the two disparate parts. Interesting. And I we will get into, as we move through this, just how much of an impact a larger firm has on enterprise value. So while it's always ultimately about increasing enterprise value, it's also about the short term. So the sixth thing you mentioned was taking some chips off the table and diversifying equity. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Because most firm principals and even wirehouse advisors have their net worth tied up in their business almost exclusively. So by selling a business, either all or a portion of it, it allows for that business owner to diversify their net worth, diversify their equity, and begin monetizing their life's work, even if they're not ready to fully step away and retire. So it seems like there is an unlimited pool of potential buyers for quality RIA firms, at least it does to me. So specifically, who are those buyers? There does seem to be a seemingly unlimited pool of potential buyers, and a large reason that is is because many firms consider themselves buyers when, in fact, they may not be ready to be acquirers. And at the same time, there certainly aren't as many firms that are actively looking to sell or merge their firms. So because of that, though, we've seen that there are 
a number of different types of buyers in the space. The first one I would like to call everyone's attention to are other like-sized RIAs. This could mean selling or more likely merging two similar-sized practices together. The benefit of this is a firm is, in principle, are able to maintain more of an active voice in the leadership and direction of the firm, and it will be a more familiar operating environment after a transaction. However, the downside of this approach are that oftentimes two imperfect firms are brought together, and the problems of one firm may just be magnified by the other firm. The second buyer, if you will, is an internal buyer. Most firms would prefer to sell their firm internally, either to a family member or young advisors who have risen through the ranks with them. And that's because it's a much simpler approach, it's more familiar to clients, and allows for an owner to maintain control for the maximum period of time. When there's an internal transaction, though, there are some drawbacks, mainly that a transaction is done at typically a significant discount to the value that a seller could get on the open market. And many firms, as we referenced earlier, are unable to develop or recruit their successor into that role. Thirdly, we see multi-billion dollar standalone RIAs. These are firms that have significant scale. They could be multifamily offices that have deal-making expertise and have a track record of recruiting significant advisors and acquiring practices. Some firm names that come to mind would be Aspirient, a very large RIA based in California that has now over $8 billion assets under management, as well as Greg Fleming's new business, the Rockefeller Group, which is just starting to launch off the ground, and the transaction is closing shortly. The advantages for a seller of merging in with a multi-billion dollar RIA is that these businesses are really institutionalized, meaning they have a fully built-out infrastructure, they solved for things like scale and succession, and many other areas that RIA firms are looking to solve for. The equity in this firm with the rising tide lifts all boats phenomena is also worth more than some of these smaller firm acquirers. However, of course, there is a downside of selling to one of these larger organizations, mainly that a seller would give up more control over the day-to-day than they would with selling to a smaller counterpart or staying independent. This means that Areas like investment management, financial planning, compliance, and operations are typically centralized because it creates more efficiencies for the firm and really allows them to operate at their scale. So what about private equity-backed roll-ups? And I know roll-up is sort of a, a term of art that a lot of people don't love, but firms like Mercer or Mariner or United Capital or Focus Financial. Great point. Typically, I would distinguish these private equity-backed roll-ups as being different from the multi-billion dollar RIAs because they have more significant pools of capital behind them. And typically, firms in this bucket are 
more standardized and streamlined than some of their multi-billion dollar counterparts. I think that is an important distinction, and in many regards, the multi-billion dollar standalone RIAs and the private equity-backed roll-ups are quite similar in terms of their size, but what differentiates them is the significant capital behind these firms and also the fact that each of these roll-ups and many that you mentioned and a few others standardize processes a little bit more and tend to have one mode of doing things in the areas like portfolio management, financial planning, retirement plan consulting, et cetera. Yeah. And I think it's worth adding that oftentimes these private equity-backed roll-ups, if you will, are firms that are not patient investors and that they become the only real buyer for the rest of the business or the portion of the business that hasn't been sold at the end of the day. And that can ultimately have an impact on overall enterprise value. Yes, I would agree. Private equity is certainly a new trend in this space as well, with not just the private equity-backed roll-ups like a Mercer or a Mariner, but private equity firms like Focus Financial Partners also invest directly in established RIAs and significant wirehouse advisors that are looking to enter into the RIA space. Focus, for instance, last year was invested in by KKR and StonePoint. In their model, they purchase a portion of a business, but really allow that firm to continue to operate as it did before. It's great because there's very little disruption for clients and for advisors. The firm can keep their brand, really retains day-to-day operating control, and their mode of doing things. The downside, though, of private equity firms, as you just referenced, is firms can be limiting some of their upside earning potential because they're selling a significant portion of this now, albeit at very attractive terms. And at the end of the day, the ultimate buyer for the rest of the business is really only those within the firm and the private equity vehicle itself. So what of banks as acquirers? And I think everyone in the industry remembers the First Republic Bank's acquisition of Luminous Capital, the legacy Merrill Lynch advisors years ago that was a watershed transaction. So are banks legitimate acquirers as well for RIA businesses? Surprisingly, yes. Last year, 8% of all of the deals in the space were done by banks. And it's kind of surprising because independent business owners, many of which came from banks, often think of bank acquirers as being potentially restrictive and limiting and bureaucratic. But what we've seen actually is that banks provide for a very significant growth engine for a firm. Last year, for instance, People's United Bank acquired Gerstein Fisher a multi-billion dollar RIA. And the driver behind that transaction, aside from succession, was that Peoples was able to introduce new clients to Gerstein Fisher and vice versa. Peoples got a new captive source of cross-selling opportunities for their products. So when done correctly and for the right reasons, a bank can actually be a very legitimate and deep-pocketed buyer of independent businesses. So let's move to the next question. 
and it's probably the most important question or the one on most everyone's mind. So how are businesses valued? And I recognize that we could spend a whole episode and multiple hours answering it, but maybe just give us an overview. Yeah, you're definitely right. The valuation is oftentimes the most important part of a deal and certainly could be the most time-consuming for a potential buyer. But in a nutshell, firms are valued on a multiple of earnings or free cash flow, which is very different from the way wirehouse deals are structured, meaning a multiple of trailing 12 months production. It's also important to note that transactions in this space are paid out at long-term capital gains treatment as opposed to ordinary income tax, which means that the after-tax benefit of these deals are immense. And some multiple ranges that are thrown around, and this is really more art than science, but to give you a gauge of what a business could be worth, some ranges we hear are three to five times earnings for a $250 million and below business, maybe something in the realm of four to six times for a $250 million to $500 million business, and can span all the way up to seven to nine times for a billion dollar plus firm. And Luminous Capital sold to First Republic for 11 to 12 times earnings. So really the scale um, determines what a multiple is, but ultimately competition and optionality drives the price. If there's multiple suitors, just the nature of human interaction show that a buyer might be willing to pay a higher price. So what we will be covering in a in a future episode is the rest of this topic, to put numbers to it, to talk about how the long-term economics of independence compares to the long-term economics of wirehouse world. And equally important, you talk about the independent space valuing deals based upon a multiple of EBITDA. But how would a wirehouse advisor know what his EBITDA or profitability is? And we will discuss that at a later date. So what of inorganic growth? That is the growth fueled by recruiting and M&A. We understand that it has a tremendous impact on overall enterprise value, the value of a business. Why is that? Great point. And this point in particular is why they're independent firms that are raising their hand to be buyers. The economic benefit to a acquiring firm is undeniable, largely because of operating leverage and each deal really adds meaningful points to their payout or net take home and also means that the valuation their firm will get at the end of the day will be that much higher since, remember, deals are paid on a multiple of earnings. And finally, the rising tide lifts all boats phenomena. So what makes a buyer interested in a prospective seller and how is valuation impacted? Beauty is often in the eye of the beholder, as many times evaluation is arrived at by the level of strategic importance of the acquired firm. What I mean by this is, for instance, a bank may be willing to pay more than a typical RIA for an acquisition because of the cross-selling opportunities that are available um, after a deal. And also, aside from the pure numbers of a deal and looking at things like a discounted cash flow analysis or a simple multiple, 
there are probably eight different factors that will not only decide if a firm's going to be a good fit for an acquirer, but also determine which end of the multiple scale a buyer is going to land on. And those areas typically are certainly the size and scale of the business, meaning in terms of AUM and revenue, means that the people in the firm and whether business development is diversified. It means process and how repeatable and efficient are things like investment management and financial planning. Another area would be the client base, typically high net worth client bases and more diversified and less concentrated client bases make a buyer a little bit less nervous. Next would be clean compliance. This is a big one as a buyer takes on the liability of that firm. So certainly clean compliance track record is crucial. It's really a price of admission. Um, The sixth driver in this category is going to be pricing. How competitively priced is a firm's services? Is there room for prices to increase based on new services? And finally, I would say financials. Certainly the profitability matters, but will a buyer have an opportunity to find cost synergies after a deal? And one last item would be momentum. What has been the organic growth of the firm and what's been the trajectory of that firm? Okay, so we've talked a lot about M&A once a firm is already independent. But can you give me an example of a wirehouse team who went independent and then monetized partially or by sale of the entire business? Certainly. There are many. And you referenced earlier Luminous Capital, which is really the case study for how a wirehouse team can launch, grow, and sell their RIA for an eye-popping multiple. But I think another one to mention is IFAM Capital. IFAM Capital was founded by Tim Neen and Clayton Hartman. They were a $8 million UBS team in Colorado that decided to sell a portion of their business to private equity firm Focus Financial in 2015. And the reason I bring them up is because it's a classic example of how a significant wirehouse team is able to monetize their business partly in the short term upon time of sale, but also by acquiring independent businesses, recruiting some of their UBS colleagues, and one of the partners even used the transaction as an opportunity to recycle equity to the next generation in the firm, and then eventually retire out of the firm a year or two later. So what I'm hearing is an optionality, a real flexibility around succession planning and the like. What we've validated here is that independence is not for everyone, especially those who are most focused on the short term and more risk averse. No doubt, and without any equivocation, the economics of independence are super sexy and dwarf the economics of being an employee, given at least an eight to 10 year window. While in this episode, we focused on the ability to sell the business for maximum value to any number of anxious and welcoming potential acquirers, there were plenty of other long-term financial upsides, including a sustained period of increased take-home economics and adding inorganic growth to the mix. So let me thank you, Lewis, for joining us and for sharing your insights with us. Anytime. Thanks for having me.
our next episode, I'll be speaking with an advisor who took the leap in 2009 just after the market collapse and has never looked back. Like many advisors, he felt the tug of his entrepreneurial spirit, but was concerned about leaving behind the platforms and protections of the wirehouse world, comforts that his clients had also become accustomed to. Ultimately, he found the right solution in Wells Fargo Finet. And we'll discuss candidly what a move to independence was like back in 2009 and where his business has gone today. So I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for some valuable content. And if you're not already a recipient of our weekly blog, what we call Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. You can always feel free to email or call me if you have any specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note, as always, that requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.